Chapter Eight of The Bent Twig by Dorothy Canfield. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight Sabotage. Sylvia and Judith walked to school in profound silence. Sylvia was shrinking with every nerve from the ordeal of facing again those four hundred hostile faces, from the new and painful relations with her playmates which lay before her. She was now committed irrevocably to the cause of the Fingals, and she felt a terrified doubt of having enough moral strength to stick to that position. For the moment, the problem was settled by their arriving at the schoolhouse almost too late. The lines were just marching into the building, and both girls barely slipped into their places in time. Sylvia noticed with relief that Camilla was absent. All the 5A girls had paper bags or pasteboard boxes, and in the air of the 5A cloakroom was a strong smell of vinegar. Gretchen Schmidt's pickles had begun to soak through the bag, and she borrowed the cover of a box to set them in. These sounds and smells recalled the picnic to Sylvia's mind, the picnic to which she had been looking forward with such inexpressible pleasure. For an instant, she was aghast to think that she had forgotten her bananas tied up already at home on the sideboard but the next instant she thought sadly that she probably would not be welcome at the picnic she went to her seat and sat forlorn through the changing lessons of the afternoon the teacher ground out the half-hour lessons wearily her eyes on the clock as unaware of the crisis in her class as though she were in another planet at four o'clock, Sylvia filed out with the other children to the cloakroom, but there was not the usual quick, practiced grab, each for his own belongings. The girls remained behind, exclaiming and lamenting. Such a clamor arose that the teacher came hurrying in, anxious for the reputation for good behavior of her class. Good behavior in the Washington Street School, as in a penitentiary, was gauged by the degree of silence and immobility achieved by the inmates. The girls ran to Miss Miller, crying out, "'Somebody's stolen our lunches! We left them here, all our boxes and things, and they're all gone!' Sylvia hung back in the door to the schoolroom, apart from the others, half relieved by the unexpected event which diverted attention from her. One of the boys who had gone ahead in the line, now came back, a large cucumber stuck in the corner of his mouth, like a fat green cigar. He announced with evident satisfaction in the girl's misfortune that the steps were strewn with pickles. The bag must have burst entirely as they were being carried downstairs. Gretchen Schmidt began to weep. All them good pickles! One of the girls flew at the boy who brought the bad news. I just bet you did it yourself, Jimmy Weaver, you and Frank Kennedy. You boys were mad anyhow because we didn't ask you to come to the picnic. Jimmy's face assumed the most unmistakably genuine expression of astonishment and aggrieved innocence. Ah, you're off your base. I wouldn't have gone to your darned old picnic. And wasn't I in the room every minute this afternoon? No, you weren't. You weren't. 
More of the girls had come to the attack and now danced about the boy, hurling accusations at him. You got excused to get a drink of water, and so did Pete Roberts. You did it then. You did. Hush, children, not so loud, said Miss Miller. You'll have the principal down here. At this terrible threat, the children, in spite of their heat, lowered their voices. Jimmy was beginning an angry, half-alarmed protest. Ah, twas a tramp must have got in and saw when he was pushed out of the way by a small, vigorous hand. Judith Marshall walked in, her face very pale. She was breathing hard, and through her parted lips, as though she had been running fast, her small white teeth showed like those of an enraged squirrel. I threw your picnic things in the river, she said. The older children recoiled from this announcement and from the small tense figure. Even the teacher kept her distance, as though Judith were some dangerous little animal. "'What in the world did you do that for?' she asked in a tone of stupefaction. "'Because they are nasty, mean things,' said Judith. "'And if they weren't going to let Kim Camilla to go to the picnic, I wasn't going to let them have any picnic.' The teacher turned around to Sylvia, now almost as white as her sister, and said helplessly, Sylvia, do you know what she's talking about? Sylvia went forward and took Judith's hand. She was horrified beyond words by what Judith had done, but Judith was her little sister. Yes, ma'am, she said to Miss Miller's question, speaking for all her agitation, quickly and fluently, as was her habit, though not very coherently. Yes, ma'am, I know. Everybody was saying this morning that the Fingal's mother was a negro, and so the girls weren't going to invite Camilla to the picnic, and it made Judith mad. Why, she didn't know Camilla very well, did she? asked the teacher, astonished. No, ma'am, said Sylvia, still speaking quickly, although the tears of fright were beginning to stand in her eyes. It just got her mad because the other girls weren't going to invite her because she didn't think it was anyhow her fault. "'Whose fault?' cried the teacher, completely lost. "'Camilla's!' quavered Sylvia, the tears beginning to fall. There was a pause. "'Well, I never!' exclaimed the teacher, whose parents had come from New England. She was entirely at a loss to know how to treat this unprecedented situation, and like other potentates with a long habit of arbitrary authority, she covered her perplexity with a smart show of decision. You children go right straight home, along out of the building, this minute, she commanded. You know you're not allowed to loiter around after school hours. Sylvia and Judith, stay here. I'm going to take you up to the principal's office. The girls and Jimmy Weaver ran clattering down the stairs in an agreeably breathless state of excitement. In their opinion, the awfulness of the situation had been adequately recognized by the teacher and signaled by the equally awful expedient of a visit to the principal's office, the last resort in the case of the rarely occurring insubordinate boy. Because Miss Miller had not the least idea what to say in an event so far out of the usual routine, she talked a great deal during the trip through the empty halls and staircases up to the principal's office on the top floor. 
chiefly to the effect that as many years as she had taught, never had she encountered such a bad little girl as Judith. Judith received this in stony silence, but Sylvia's tears fell fast. All the years of her docile school existence had trained her in the habit of horror at insubordination above every other crime. She felt as disgraced as though Judith had been caught stealing, perhaps more so. Miss Miller knocked at the door. The principal, stooping and hollow-chested, opened it and stood confronting, with tired, kind eyes, the trio before him. The severe woman, with her pathetic, prematurely old face and starved, flat body. The pretty little girl, hanging down her head and weeping. The smaller child, who gave him one black, defiant look, and then gazed past him out of the window. "'Well, Miss Miller?' he asked. "'I've brought you a case that I don't know what to do with,' she began. "'This is Judith Marshall, in the third grade, and she has just done one of the naughtiest things I ever heard of.' When she had finished her recital, "'How do you know this child did it?' asked Mr. Bristol, always his first question in cases between teachers and pupils. "'She was so brazen as to come right back and tell us so,' said Miss Miller, her tone growing more and more condemnatory. Judith's face, capable of such rare and positive beauty, had now shut down into a hard, repellent little mask of hate. Mr. Bristol looked at her for a moment in silence, and then at Sylvia, sobbing, her arm crooked over her face, hiding everything but her shining curls. "'And what has this little girl to do with anything?' he asked. "'This is Sylvia Marshall, Judith's sister, and of course she feels dreadfully about Judith's doing such a dreadful thing,' explained Miss Miller inelegantly. Mr. Bristol walked back to his desk and sat down. "'Well, I think I needn't keep you any longer, Miss Miller,' he said. "'If you will just leave the little girls here for a while, perhaps I can decide what to do about it.' Thus mildly but unmistakably dismissed, the teacher took her departure, pushing Sylvia and Judith inside the door and shutting it audibly after her. She was so tired as she walked down the stairs that she ached, and she thought to herself, as if things weren't hard enough without their going and being naughty. Inside the room there was a moment's silence, filled almost palpably by Sylvia's quivering alarm and by Judith's bitter mental resistance. Mr. Bristol drew out a big book from the shelf over his desk and held it out to Sylvia. "'I guess you all got pretty excited about this, didn't you?' he said, smiling wisely at the child. You and your sister sit down and look at the pictures in this for a while, till you get cooled off, and then I'll hear all about it. Sylvia took the book obediently, and drew Judith to a chair, opening the pages, brushing away her tears, and trying to go through the form of looking at the illustrations, which were of the birds native to the region. In spite of her emotion, the large, brightly colored pictures did force their way through her eye to her brain, instinct in every fiber with the modern habit of taking in impressions from the printed page. And for years afterwards, she could have told the names of the birds they saw during that long, still half-hour, 
broken by no sound but the tap-tap-tap of Mr. Bristol's typewriter. He did not once look towards them. This was partly a matter of policy, and partly because he was trying desperately to get a paper written for the next convention of public school principals, which he was to address on the study of arithmetic in the seventh grade. He had very fixed and burning ideas about the teaching of arithmetic in the seventh grade, which he longed with a true believer's fervor to see adopted by all the schools in the country. He often said that if they would only do so, the study of arithmetic would be revolutionized in a decade. Judith sat beside her sister, not pretending to look at the book, although the rigidity of her face insensibly softened somewhat in the contagious quiet of the room. When they had turned over the last page and shut the book, Mr. Bristol faced them again leaning back in his swivel chair, and said, Now, children, all quiet. One of you begin at the beginning and tell me how it happened. Judith's lips shut together in a hard line, so Sylvia began, surprised to find her nerves steadied and calmed by the silent half-hour of inaction back of her. She told how they were met that morning by the news, how the children shouted after Camilla as she got into the carriage, how the 5A girls had decided to exclude her from the picnic, how angry Judith had been, and then, then, she knew no more to tell beyond the bare fact of Judith's passionate misdeed. Mr. Bristol began to cross-examine Judith in short, quiet sentences. What made you think of throwing the things into the river? I was afraid they'd get them back somehow if I didn't said Judith, as if stating a self-evident argument. Where did you go to throw them in? To the Monroe Street Bridge? No, I didn't have time to go so far. I just went down through Randolph Street to the bank, and there was a boat there tied to a tree, and I got in and pushed it out as far as the rope would go and dropped the things in from the other end. Sylvia caught her breath in terror at this recital. The Picota River ran swift and turbid and deep between high banks at that point. "'Weren't you afraid to venture out in a boat all by yourself?' asked the man, looking at Judith's diminutive person. "'Yes, I was,' said Judith unexpectedly. Mr. Bristol said, "'Oh,' and stood in thought for a moment. Someone knocked on the door, and he turned to open it. At the sight of the tall figure standing there in his pepper-and-salt suit, Sylvia's heart gave a great bound of incredulous rapture. The appearance of a merciful mediator on the Day of Judgment could not have given her keener or more poignant relief. She and Judith both ran headlong to their father, catching his hands in theirs, clinging to his arms and pressing their little bodies against his. The comfort Sylvia felt in his mere physical presence was inexpressible. It is one of the pure, golden emotions of childhood which no adult can ever recover, save, perhaps, a mystic in a moment of ecstatic contemplation of the power and loving-kindness of his God. Professor Marshall put out his hand to the principal, introducing himself, and explained that he and his wife had been a little uneasy when the children had not returned from school. Mr. Bristol 
shook the other's hand, saying that he knew of him through mutual acquaintances, and assuring him that he could not have come at a more opportune moment. "'Your little daughter has given me a hard nut to crack. I need advice.' Both men sat down, Sylvia and Judith still close to their father's side, and Mr. Bristol told what had happened in a concise, colorless narration, ending with Judith's exploit with the boat. "'Now, what would you do in my place?' he said, like one proposing an insoluble riddle. Sylvia, seeing the discussion going on in such a quiet, conversational tone, ventured in a small voice the suggestion that Judith had done well to confess, since that had saved others from suspicion. The girls were sure that Jimmy Weaver had done it. "'Was that why you came back and told?' asked Professor Marshall. "'No,' said Judith bluntly. "'I never thought of that. I wanted to be sure they knew why it happened.' The two men exchanged glances. Professor Marshall said, "'Didn't you understand me when I told you at noon that even if you could make the girls let Camilla go to the picnic, she wouldn't have a good time? You couldn't make them like to have her.' "'Yes, I understood all right,' said Judith, looking straight at her father. "'But if she couldn't have a good time, and no fault of hers, I wasn't going to let them have a good time either. I wasn't trying to make them want her. I was trying to get even with them.' Professor Marshall looked stern. "'That is just what I feared, Judith, and that hateful spirit is the bad thing about the whole business.' He turned to the principal. How many girls were going to this picnic? The other, with a wide gesture, disavowed any knowledge of the matter. Good heavens! How should I know? Sylvia counted rapidly. Fourteen, she said. Well, Mr. Bristol, how would this do for a punishment? Judith has worked in various ways, digging up dandelions from the lawn, weeding flower beds, running errands, you know all the things children do, and she has a little more than five dollars in her iron savings bank that she has been saving for more than a year to buy a collie puppy. Would you be satisfied if she took that money, divided it into fourteen parts, and took it herself in person to each of the girls? During this proposal, Judith's face had taken on an expression of utter dismay. She looked more childlike more like her years than at any moment during the interview. "'Oh, father!' she implored him with a deep note of entreaty. He did not look at her, but over her head at the principal, who was rising from his chair with every indication of relief on his face. "'Nothing could be better,' he said. "'That will be just right. Everyone will be satisfied, and I'll just say, for the sake of discipline, that little judith shan't come back to school till she has done her penance of course she can get it all done before supper-time to-night all our families live in the vicinity of the school he was shaking professor marshall's hand again and edging him towards the door his mind once more on his paper hoping that he might really finish it before night if only there were no more interruptions his achievement in divining 
the mental processes of two children hysterical with excitement his magnetic taming of those fluttering little hearts his inspired avoidance of a fatal false step at a critical point in the moral life of two human beings in the making all this seemed as nothing to him an incident of the day's routine already forgotten he conceived that his real usefulness to society lay in the reform of arithmetic teaching in the seventh grade and he turned back to his arguments with the ardor of the great landscape painter who aspires to be a champion at billiards professor marshall walked home in silence with his two daughters explained the matter to his wife and said that he and sylvia would go with judith on her uncomfortable errand mrs marshall listened in silence and went herself to get the little bank stuffed full of painfully earned pennies and nickels then she bade them into the kitchen and gave judith and sylvia each a cookie and a glass of milk she made no comment whatever on the story or on her husband's sentence for the culprit but just as the three were going out of the door she ran after them caught judith in her arms and gave her a passionate kiss the next day was saturday and it was suggested that judith and sylvia carry on their campaign by going to see the fingals and spending the morning playing with them as though nothing had happened as they approached the house somewhat perturbed by the prospect they saw with surprise that the windows were bare of the heavy yellow lace curtains which had hung in the parlor darkening that handsomely furnished room to a rich twilight they went up on the porch and judith rang the bell resolutely while sylvia hung a little back of her from this position she could see into the parlor and exclaimed why judy this isn't the right house nobody lives here the big room was quite empty the floors bare of the large soft rugs and as the children pressed their faces to the pane they could see through an open door into a bedroom also dismantled and deserted they ran around the house to the back door and knocked on it there was no answer judith turned the knob the door opened and they stood in what had been unmistakably the fingal's kitchen evidence of wild haste and confusion was everywhere about them the floor was littered with excelsior the shelves half cleared and half occupied still with cooking supplies a packing box partly filled with kitchenware which at the last moment the fugitives had evidently decided to abandon the little girls stood in this silent desolation looking about them with startled eyes a lean mother cat came and rubbed her thin pendant flanks against their legs purring and whining three kittens skirmished joyfully in the excelsior wailing one another in ambush and springing out with bits of the yellow fibers clinging to their woolly soft fur they're they've gone breathed sylvia they've gone away for good judith nodded even her bold and unimaginative spirit somewhat daunted by the ghostly silence of the house sylvia tiptoed to the swinging door and pushed it open yes there was the pantry like the kitchen in chaotic disorder tissue paper and excelsior thick on the floor and entangled with it the indescribable jumble of worthless 
disconnected objects, always tumbled together by a domestic crisis, like a fire or a removal. Old gloves, wisp brooms, hat forms, lamps, magazines, tarnished desk fittings. The sight was so eloquent of panic haste that Sylvia let the door swing shut and ran back into the kitchen. Judith was pointing silently to a big paper bag on the shelf. It had been tossed there with some violence, evidently, for the paper had burst and the contents had cascaded out on the shelf and on the floor. The rich, beraisined cookies which Camilla was to have taken to the picnic. Sylvia felt the tears stinging her eyelids and pulled Judith out of the tragic house. They stood for a moment in the yard, beside a bed of flowering crocuses brilliant in the sun. The forsaken house looked down severely at them from its blank windows. Judith was almost instantly relieved of mental tension by the outdoor air, and stooped down unconcernedly to tie her shoe. She broke the lace and had to sit down, take it out of the shoe, tie it, and put it back again. The operation took some time, during which Sylvia stood still, her mind whirling. For the first time in her steadily forward-going life, there was a sharp, irrevocable break. Something which had been yesterday was now no more. She would never see Camilla again. She who recalled Camilla's look of anguish as though they still stood side by side. Her heart filled with unspeakable thankfulness that she had put her arms around Camilla's neck at that supreme last moment. That had not been Judith's doing. That had come from her own heart. Unconsciously, she had laid the first stone in the wall of self-respect, which might, in the future, fortify her against her weaknesses. She stood looking up blindly at the house, shivering again at the recollection of its echoing, empty silence. The moment was one she never forgot. Standing there in that commonplace backyard, staring up at a house like any one of forty near her, she felt her heart grow larger. In that moment, tragedy, mystery, awe, and pity laid their shadowy fingers on her shining head. End of chapter 8